When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. Hey y'all, so last week we went on down to Mobile, Alabama and explored the legend of the Boynton Oak. Well, if you're a regular listener to the show, you might have noticed that this particular tale had a very familiar name attached to it. Because this particular story is one that was written about and made popular by one of my personal heroes, the prolific Alabama folklorist and storyteller, Catherine Tucker Wyndham. Now, as I've said, you've probably heard her name a lot listening to Southern Gothic. Because for many of these stories that we know and love today, Miss Wyndham was the first person to actually put the pen to paper and publish them. And as a result, if you were a kid growing up down here in the 70s or 80s, you very likely owned one of her books. Her first, and probably most famous, was called 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey, and it was published back in 1969. This iconic book included 13 ghost stories from Alabama, and y'all, it was so impactful on local lore that in the 100-plus episodes that we've put out, eight of them are stories that Wyndham included in this book. Pretty wild, right? Not to mention that this was only the first of seven in her series of ghost story books, which included stories that we've covered like Nina Craigmile's Bleeding Mausoleum here in Tennessee, as well as those spectral monks that are chanting out on St. Catherine's Island in Georgia. Y'all, Catherine Tucker Wyndham has covered it all. And to make it even cooler, she had quite the personality. She was everything that you'd expect from that stereotypical spitfire Southern mama. In fact, y'all should go check out some of her storytelling on YouTube after this episode. But first, I've got something entirely different for you. Rather than me sit here and tell you about my hero in the typical fashion that I do in episodes, I actually went and interviewed Kelly Gates Elmore the coordinator of the Catherine Tucker Wyndham Museum at the Coastal Alabama Community College. That's right, Miss Wyndham got her own museum. So y'all, sit back, relax, and I hope y'all enjoy getting to know a little more about one of my favorite storytellers.
I am Kelly Gates Elmore. I am basically the librarian and the museum coordinator here at the Thomasville campus of Coastal Alabama Community College. It functions as an academic library as well as a biographical museum of our one of our most famous Thomasville natives, Katherine Tucker Windham. And as a Thomasville native myself, I'm happy to uh, be here to preserve and share her legacy. So she was born Katherine Tucker in 1918. And she was actually the youngest of a large family um, that grew up here in Thomasville, Alabama. Really early on, a lot of her early stories that she has collected and published were about her times growing up in the 20s and the 30s with the Great Depression. She really has some interesting perspectives on that in rural America. She really began as a journalist, um, and two of her biggest passions along with storytelling and oral storytelling were journalism and photography. And at the age of 12, fun fact, she actually began her journalism career writing movie reviews for the Thomasville Times, which is the local newspaper here. It was owned by one of her cousins, Earl Tucker. And so that was one of her first really journalism jobs. That's kind of where she got really into that career field and knew that was the route she wanted to take. We um, actually have here in the museum a little press card for the Thomasville Times that says Catherine Tucker on it so that she could get into the movie theaters and watch the movies for free and write a good review about it for the newspaper. In 1930, this was the 50th anniversary year of the Eastman Kodak Company. And so um, throughout the country, they were actually giving away brownie cameras, free brownie cameras. And she lined up to be one of the first people to receive one in this area where they were giving them out. So she really got into photography and journalism really early. And those are two of her passions one of the things we do feature here at the museum are a lot of the photos she actually took herself. So when you are walking around, especially in our Wyndham room, which is one of our larger study rooms, a lot of those photos are the photos that she took. And we actually even have a lot of photos that she took with this original camera. And we also have this original camera in the museum as well. So really, the way I describe it is she didn't just preserve stories through, you know, the written word or through the um, oral tradition. She was also the preserver of stories through images, because for me, I really believe the photos tell as much of a story as any paragraph, any book you can write. Um, there's a lot in an image that you can capture and preserve. And I think she really understood that as well with storytelling. And a lot of her photos of the South and how she saw the South, they're really, really incredible, really fun to look at. Um, and if you are a person who really enjoys history or the history of the Southern United States, I think you'll find her photos really fascinating as well. She was actually the valedictorian at her high school. So 
very smart as well as a very voracious person going out there and beginning a career at an early age. She attended Huntington College, which is in Montgomery, Alabama. She pursued her career in journalism from there. And just kind of a little short snippet, she was hired at the Alabama Journal in March after her graduation. And one of my favorite facts about her is she was hired as a feature writer and a police reporter. And she was actually one of the first women, I believe the first woman in the state to write a police beat for a major newspaper in the South. So not just covering ghosts and folklore, but also covering crime. Um, And that was really a progressive move for this time. So her husband, Amasa Wyndham, was actually a fellow journalist and editor. That is how they met. And they moved to Selma and they would have three children. One thing I think that kind of impacted her and how she worked was that really early in their marriage, he passed away in 1956. I believe he had a lot of medical issues with his heart. So she was a young widow with three children. And that's when she would join the staff of the Selma Times Journal full time. And also she was doing a lot of freelance work. And at this point in time in her life, which we're getting into the 1960s, this is when she gets into publishing books. And her first book published was actually Treasured Alabama Recipes. And it's a collection of classic Southern recipes. I have it here for you to look at real quick if you're interested. (laughs) The copy I have here in my office was actually signed by her and autographed. And it says, please do not put sugar in the cornbread. (laughs) My grandmother, born about the same time as uh, Catherine, she would agree. (laughs) Divisive Southern issues right there. (laughs) I know. But um, that was actually her first book published. And then she would follow that up with many, many books, but especially her eight book series of ghost stories, which began in 1964 with the 13 Ghosts of Alabama. And there are many publications. Um, There's the 13 Ghosts of Alabama, the Jeffrey's latest 13, which are more Alabama ghosts. Some of my favorite ones are actually in the sequel. 13 Georgia ghosts, 13 Mississippi ghosts. We also go into Tennessee as well. So she didn't just focus on her home state. She did focus on collecting the ghost stories of the Southeast in general. Also in the 1980s, she began to broadcast her stories on Alabama Public Radio, and these actually got national syndication through NPR and All Things Considered. So what really amazes me is her impact to reach a national audience with her storytelling. And in our museum, when we first opened in the early 2000s, I still have some of the signed guest books that they used to have in the lobby. And we had people from all over the country. I have California, Washington. It was really fascinating to me that there are people who are traveling the country to hear and see more about our storyteller. So she really, I think she really did have a valuable presence. Photography was another main passion of hers. One of her books published, Encounters, is actually a lot of her photos. And with each photo, 
she writes a couple of pages kind of telling a story attached to it. And it's really giving her perspective of what felt significant in that photo and why she captured that moment or that image. Her photographs, which a lot of the photographs in Encounters are these, they were featured in multiple state art exhibitions throughout the state of Alabama. And that was just another way her storytelling kind of reached a wider audience. And Catherine actually lived a long, long life, and she was writing and telling stories right up until her death in 2011. She was at a storytelling event just a few months before she passed away, actually. And her last book, She, was published posthumously, and it was really kind of her final collection of storytelling and really a reflection of her life. The full title of the book is... She, the old woman who took over my life. And she is really, um, the she in the book is herself. It's like she's looking at herself as this older person and kind of reflecting on aging. And one of the last chapters in the book is actually writing about how she would like her funeral to be, how she would want people to celebrate her when she's gone. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is if you read any of the newspaper clippings or any other reports from when she passed away in her funeral ceremony in Selma, you'll find that that chapter was actually what they followed to the T. In her home in Selma, she actually had a wooden coffin in her shed. I believe it was pine, maybe oak. I'm not sure. But she actually had the coffin she knew she wanted to be buried in. So. She knew what she wanted to be buried in. She knew who she wanted to have speak at her funeral. Um, and she wanted her favorite song played, I'll Fly Away. So to the end, everything was a story. Everything just was played out perfectly for her and celebrated, I think, wonderfully. Well, if there's anything we've learned from her stories, it's you better follow that to a T or else she's coming back, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I think she had a very strong personality, too, with going after stories. I've read a lot of little things that we have here in the museum of how when she was investigating ghost stories in Mississippi, she walked into a newspaper office in a small town and she said, hi, I'm Catherine and I'm hunting for ghosts. It's very straight to the point. <laughs> so that that one quote from her really is one of the ones that stuck out to me. I'm like, we don't have that on any signs or anything, but to me, I think that's really, really points at her personality. Like what kind of her journalist she was, like she was going to go find the story she was looking for and she was going to get straight to the point and not going to be vague about it. She wanted ghost stories. She was going to let you know, I'm looking for ghosts. How did she move into that? So she was a journalist and obviously, this is the thing she dreamt of. There's, I, I know there's this fantastic quote about her talking about how some people want to fly planes and some people want to do this. And all I wanted to do was be a journalist and write for the newspaper. So she went from that into moving into telling, I'm mean, just telling stories in general in a much different way than you do as a journalist in this. She reminds me of everyone's mama down here. Yeah. Uh, you know, has that person, <laughs> that boisterous personality. And, you know, you're going to sit there and she's going to tell you all about it. How did she move? From that, how, how did that pivot happen? I think a lot of the inspiration in some ways came from her time at Huntington College. So the ghost stories, you know, are written in 
partnership with Margaret Gillis Fye, who was actually an English professor and one of her instructors at Huntington College. And she really had an impact on Catherine's education, but I think also on her interest in preserving folklore and ghost stories. Um, one of the ghost stories, of course, that is preserved is the lady in, what is it? The lady in red. Yeah, the red lady of Huntington. The red yeah. lady of Huntington. Mm-hmm. Hearing stories like that while she's in college, I think that kind of began to put that in her head. You also see um, in some of her writings, her more bio- autobiographical writings, kind of about how she grew up, you see a lot of folklore and superstition in what she records about her youth and growing up. So I think there was always a personal interest and fascination with it. One person she references frequently is their cook, Thurza, and she picked up a lot of superstition and ghost stories from her that are recorded in some of her stories. One of her books that we have that is one of the most, I would say, autobiographical is Spit, Scary Ann, and Sweet Bees. And she references a lot of kind of superstitions that she saw from her cook at a very, very young age. And a lot of like these little ghost story type legends. And if you do this, this is going to happen to you. And just a lot of fun things like that. So one interesting thing that she remembers from a very young age is their cook wore a silver dime tied around her ankle with a cotton string to ward off evil. So I think when you really look at her whole life, these kind of stories and folk tales were always there. And she really always had an appreciation of it. So I think she just got to a point where she was like, these are the stories I grew up with. These are, this was our entertainment when I was a child. And I think she saw the significance of wanting to preserve them for future generations. A lot of this stuff is for the most part oral folk tales that are just told and just passed down. And um, in some ways, a lot, a lot of times throughout history, a lot of these oral folk tales are very rarely preserved. So I think she really kind of wanted to preserve preserve it. Yeah, and that's pretty much what we've found. You know, a lot of our focus when we do ghost stories is, especially with having a researcher as my partner in this, is that it's you, we're looking for places where the oral history was actually preserved in writing, uh, where it finally hits that point where we can really pin down what was the oral history at that point, what was the kind of definitive and she is that for so many of these stories. I mean, so many of these things, it was really, she was the first one to really publish them other than maybe every now and then you might get a little mention in a newspaper or something. So a lot of these tales, I mean, wouldn't even be around anymore if it wasn't for her work. So she traveled frequently then to do this, right? Yes. She did a lot of deep dives at public libraries, newspapers in different areas, you know, digging up the details. And like I said, one of the anecdotes I do have documented here is, like I said, when she was in Mississippi, she would go to newspapers and kind of like the areas where she knew the ghost stories she was researching were located just to find kind of archival, any kind of archival stuff written 
about that story or referencing the story. I would say, you know, her ghost stories, they're written to be entertaining and preserving it being told as a story. But she did go and do the research behind it to try to understand, you know, the full origin of the story, where it was located, who were the people alive in this area at the time, what was this community like at the time, just, you know, a few examples of what she was looking at. One of her ghost stories that's kind of close to this area is kind of right over the county line heading into Monroeville, Alabama, which is the home of Harper Lee, another literary person of this area. You get a whole background story of the cemetery that the story is focused in. And it's really kind of interesting because you get where it's at. She describes kind of what the homes around the area are what families were living there at the time, and the names of people. And when you're a local, you're kind of like, oh, I've heard that last name before. I've seen that last name on a historic home. So she she did get some of the background information for these areas where these ghost stories and these ghostly sightings were happening at the time. And I think that that is a really fascinating thing. And kind of leading off of that, one of our long-term goals here at the museum is we are partnering with the Alabama Folk Life Association to try to have, you know how there are historic markers at important and significant landmarks. We are wanting to do storytelling historic landmarks and have a storytelling trail where these markers are at the locations of her 13 Alabama ghost story locations. So we're in the works and one of the things we're doing right now, we're kind of researching where these were located. A lot of them, we know exactly where the properties are. We know where the locations are and we can get in touch with who owns it and kind of figure out where we can put a marker if we can put a marker. Some are a little more difficult. Some are harder to find. For example, one of the ones we have is the steamboat on the Tom Bigby. So that of course is on the river. So we are trying to find, you know, for example, with this one, we are locating and identifying land and, and sites along the Tom Bigby River, kind of close to where she's describing that to have happened, where, you know, the public can access it. And, you know, it's just easy to find, easy to locate. And it's a place where we can put a marker describing the story. So really, that's one of our long term goals now is creating another way of accessing the stories throughout the state and kind of preserving these historic locations and recognizing where these stories were set in the state as well. Very fun project we're working on right now. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Who's Jeffrey? <laughs> I will start off. One of the, my favorite things to tell people when they come into the museum is when I first read the book, I wanted a Jeffrey. <laughs> I thought that was just the most fascinating thing. Jeffrey is the, I think for Catherine, and she would probably say it like this. He was a constant companion, a loyal friend, and an inspiration in wanting to write ghost stories. So Jeffrey, who for a while she actually called it, was the mysterious, she didn't want to say ghost at first. It was like this mysterious force that just arrived one day at her home in Selma. And she would just notice things moving, especially one rocking chair. She would just notice a presence. And she decided after a while it would not go away. And she felt like it deserved a name. And Jeffrey was what she landed on. One of my favorite things about the books, and we actually have this image in the museum as well, is the, I would almost say it's one of the most famous images associated with her, is the image of a journalist from, I believe it was the Selma Times, Nikki Davis in Catherine's home and behind her you see the shadow with an arm sticking out and that is supposed to be the image of Jeffrey in the home. To me when I think of Catherine Tucker Wyndham, I that's the first image that pops in my head when I think of the ghost story books um, because it's in there in the forward and the introduction into the book. But the way she talks about Jeffrey is kind of almost like you talk about your cat, your favorite pet. They, they're, they're little silly antics. Um, they're just always there. <laughs> There's shenanigans is a word she uses a lot in referencing Jeffrey. And it just seemed like he was like this friendly companion and ghostly inspiration. But he, he has featured quite a lot throughout her ghost series. 
And one of my favorite things in the books are the little illustrations that are throughout the book. Um, at each chapter, there is a depiction of Jeffrey, kind of thematic with each ghost story. So he almost became an endearing mascot for the series as well. Um, we have a t-shirt that Catherine wore quite often when she was telling ghost stories that has Jeffrey on it. Also in my office, I'm looking at it right now, I have a walking stick that she would have with her at some of her storytelling events that has Jeffrey carved into it at the top. So he, he really just became almost the, the mascot of the series. And so many people I know that are really, that I have met that are fans of the series or um, just fans of her in general, they all bring up Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we like to joke that he comes and visits the museum as well. Right. You told me you have a rocking chair. We do. We have his rocking chair. We keep a sign in it that says reserved for Jeffrey at all times. I've been told that when he comes to visit, it will rock. I've yet to see it. Maybe when there's some other people around and I'm not working by myself. We also have a pillow that she had in the home that would sit in the rocking chair that says Jeffrey lives here. There's We have quite a few Jeffrey items. Like I said, he's become the endearing, loved mascot of the series. Do you have a favorite story of hers or something you connect with? I have a couple. First one I do want to share is not from the ghost stories. It is actually from her book Encounters, which is the one I mentioned has her photography in it. Um, and she is actually speaking about one of my favorite locations here in Clark County, Alabama, which is where Thomasville is located. Now that's just southwest of Birmingham? Yes. The best way for me to describe where Thomasville, Alabama is, is if you go to a map of the state of Alabama and you find Mobile, Alabama, south of us and Selma, Alabama, north of us, and you just put your finger right in between the two. In the woods. <laughs> we're there in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so Clark County, Alabama, the east and west borders of the county are the Alabama and the Tom Big B River. So at the end of it, you get into your um, where the rivers meet and kind of work into the Mobile, Tensaw River Delta region. And so one of her photographs and her story is actually from a small community in this little reverse triangle at the bottom of Clark County near an area kind of called Carlton. And there's really not a lot going on there. It's mostly Delta and swamp, but there is a beautiful old um, cemetery, a beautiful old cemetery called Mount Nebo. And there was one person who lived in the community at the time who actually did basically death masks on the top of the headstones. And these are called the Mount Nebo death masks. And she kind of writes a story, um, just a very brief story about this old cemetery with some of the photographs that she took of it. And one of my favorite photos of hers is of one of these graves, which has just a perfectly sculpted image 
of the person who is buried there. And this one person at the Death Mask Graveyard, as it is mainly known, basically captured a lot of the people in his family and a lot of his friends when they were buried and basically preserved their likeness in these stones. So one of the most detailed ones there was the likeness of Selena Nettles, whose son, Ike Nettles, which is the person who actually was creating all of these, Ike Nettles, when she passed away in 1933, he erected a headstone for her. It has a perfect likeness of her head. Um, when it was first erected, it had arms outstretched like she is um, in blessing. And it actually had real hair attached to oh the head. Gosh. So it was incredibly detailed. Um, now it's very weathered. I know there's a lot of talk with a lot of different preservation groups about trying to preserve this site just because of its significance in terms of the artistry of these headstones and also its significance as an early African-American graveyard. But that's just an example of the detailing that they had. So he did one for his mother. He did one for his wife, who also passed away in the 30s. His daughters passed away before him as well, so he did death mask headstones for them as well. And she just has this beautiful write-up about how this guy was preserving the memory of the people of his community and his family. And she really is talking about kind of the importance and the value of this historic location. And I think it's just interesting that it's Catherine kind of capturing these eerie images of these you know, these headstones, these hauntingly beautiful headstones, um, when she is at this time also preserving these hauntingly beautiful ghost stories. So while it's not one of the ghost stories, it's one of my favorites because it's such a unique location in our county and in the state of Alabama. Now, have you visited, though, this cemetery? I have not. It is way, it is a little hard to get to. Now, I don't know how all the roads are there. But I know with it being in the river region, you kind of have to be wary of um, flooding with some of the accessibility. But one of my favorite ones is actually in her sequel, the Jeffrey's latest 13 More Alabama Ghosts, which I want to share. The book I have in my office was autographed by her. It says, Haunting Lilliers, Catherine T. Wyndham. And if you can see below, it says Jeffrey. Jeffrey. <laughs> so I, I love to share. I have um, Jeffrey's autograph uh -huh. as well. <laughs> so one of my favorites is, I don't know if you've read this one. It's called A Promise Kept. It is probably one of the saddest to me, like kind of heart-rendering ghost stories. Um, it is set in Suggsville, which was a very small community. There's basically a spot in the road now it doesn't really exist anymore but it's a very it was a very small community in the 1800s here in Clark County and I think what originally drew me to this story was Suggsville was minutes away from my grandparents house so when I read Suggsville I was like oh my gosh this is in a book someone knows what Suggsville is but it's such a touching story about kind of a man and the love he had for his family. And he basically, a promise kept, the promise is met kept to his son. 
he was going off to war and he always promised his son he would come back and they would ride the horse together. He would always come back. Well, one time when he came back, his son was no longer there. He had passed away at a very young age. And the ghost story is that if you go to the old house, which is, I believe it's still standing. It was standing when she, um, in her later years, in her 80s, her late 80s. Actually, it is still standing. It is a hunting lodge now. It's privately owned. But if you go to it, one of the things he would do when he had the horse um, and he was saying goodbye to his son before he went off, they would get on the horse. They would ride up the stairs of the porch, ride down it, come back and get off. And they say, if you go to the house, you can still hear them doing their celebratory goodbye ride down their large front porch and father and son on their horse still. Mm -hmm. So, and the promise has been kept in the ghost story that they are still riding together and reuniting continuously. So I really enjoy the story. The older I get, the more I like it. Um, and like I said, when I first found it as a kid, it just excited me that this small spot in the road, down the road from my grandparents' house, was in a book. So I have to say that's why it's my favorite. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely how I've came to this as well. I'm from New Orleans originally. So the things that reminded me of home and these ghost stories that made them the most important, the ones that reminded me of my grandparents, even the way they would have told me a story or something. So oh, I was just going to say, um, I think another reason we love Catherine so much is she, she is like our own, our grandparents. When I listen to Catherine and when I read her stories, it's like, this is exactly how my grandparents would have told the story. This is exactly how they would have said it. That's why she resonates as a preserver of Southern folk tales and folklore. Y'all, I can't thank Kelly enough for taking time out of her day and chatting with me about Catherine Tucker Wyndham. I'm 100% sure that we are going to cover more of her stories in the future, and it's been such a treat getting to hear about how they are preserving her memory. Now, to all you swamp critters that are listening, thinking about how you might want to go and visit Jeffrey, well, the museum is located on the coastal Alabama campus in Thomasville, Alabama, and you can find more information about it online at their website, or follow them on Facebook and Instagram. I've left links to all of those in the show notes. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White. 
the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.